Welcome to another episode of the PFC Podcast. The opinions you hear are ours and doesn't necessarily reflect anyone else's. Now on to the podcast. Welcome back to the PFC Podcast. This is Dennis. And today talking with me is Vince. Why don't you introduce yourself? Uh, thank you, Dennis. Uh, I'm Vince Kopp. I'm a a retired professor of anesthesiology and pediatrics from the University of North Carolina in Chapel Hill, North Carolina, right up the, fro- the road from Fort Bragg. All right. Well, today I brought Vince all the way down from UNC to talk about something that's near and dear to my heart, and that is optimizing the traumatic ventilations. So let's jump right in with a scenario. We have a 25-year-old male, GSW to the pelvis. We have the hemorrhage controlled externally, so we've packed the wound, we've used a pelvic binder, but he's hypotensive, he's tachycardic and tachypnic. He has no radial pulse, and his mental status, he is a GCS 11, uh, so he is moving between verbal and painful on the, on the AVPU scale. So Vince, his respiratory rate is 35. Uh, right now, how smart is it to start positive pressure ventilation? Well, Dennis, I don't think positive pressure ventilation is indicated in this scenario at this stage of the game. Uh, I think more attention needs to be devoted toward uh, stabilization of his cardiovascular status. Uh, in particular, he is um, experiencing hemorrhage. You have uh, control of the external hemorrhage, but it, that must mean he's also volume down. And he's going to be volume down for a couple of reasons. One, there's just going to be a basic level of dehydration that goes along with being out in the field. And so there's going to be a need to replete uh, fluids lost under normal um, operational circumstances. And then you're, he's going to be volume, volume down because of, uh, of the hemorrhage. And so you need to turn your attention to those factors first. Bag mask ventilation under these circumstances is not the first movement. If you felt like there was an indication for uh, supplementation of oxygen, that might be a reasonable thing to do, but without, without um, clear objective indication for doing that, I would turn my attention primarily to volume repletion. Okay. And in our world, that is threshold blood. So while I'm getting that on board, uh, maybe I'll start with some TXA and uh, normal saline to start that off since I already know he's been bleeding. But why would it not be a good idea to start positive pressure ventilations? He's very tachypnic, and I want to make that number more normal. So why is it not a good idea to do that? Well, in the first place, you don't want to just treat numbers. You want to treat patients and people. Um, What you are witnessing in a tachypnic patient who's hypovolemic is really a compensatory response for the reasons that we've already touched on. Um, So taking away ventilatory drive or trying to use positive pressure ventilation techniques in a patient who is volume down may actually contribute to uh, further cardiovascular collapse. And that's because anytime you use positive pressure ventilation, you are uh, running the risk of impeding the forward blow flow of blood out of the heart into the lungs and back into the heart. So um, unlike the spontaneously breathing situation where blood is drawn into the lungs with each breath, when you're doing positive pressure ventilation, you're actually preventing blood uh, to some degree or another from circulating through the lung tissue and then back into the left side of the heart. 
So instead of positive pressure ventilations, we optimize position either with a jaw thrust or an NPA or mm -hmm. some other adjunct. Mm -hmm. And then uh, we started resuscitation. Mm -hmm. So I'm going to do two diverging scenarios. Okay, so the first one, things are going to go better. So we give him our unit of blood, we've given him our TXA, and his blood pressure responded. So now he's sitting at uh, 90 over 60. His mental status is improving, but he's still um, He's still tachycardic and he's still tachypnic. So I put on the end tidal CO2 monitor and he is, uh, his end tidal CO2 values are, let's say around 20. Mm -hmm. Okay, they're definitely low. Mm -hmm. um, does that mean he's alkalytic? Well, it's certainly running the risk of, of having a respiratory alkalosis under those circumstances because of the rapid ventilation and the blowing off of CO2, as we would say. You have an awake, alert patient who uh, has been injured, uh, is likely both in pain and um, uh, anxious about uh, what his outcome is going to be. So uh, with a stable cardiovascular system, uh, a, a stable airway, um, you know that from your capnography that he is he's able to deliver CO2 to his lungs, in fact, maybe doing a little bit too too efficiently, then I think you're in a position where you can start turning your attention to such things as pain control uh, and doing that in a way that you're monitoring against his cardiovascular status as well as his respiratory status. You don't want to take away his ventilatory drive, but at the same time you want to lessen it, and you can do that pharmacologically with some good pain control or anxiolysis. So in order to take care of his pain, we gave him uh, ketamine, let's say 0.2 milligrams per kilogram, and he, uh, he definitely chills out. Respiratory rate starts to come down. Uh, his heart rate starts to come down, and he's responding to the fluids we've been giving mm -hmm. him. Now, instead of a very low end CO2, we're starting to get a very high end mm -hmm. CO2. So what's going on? Have I... Have I dropped his respiratory rate too low and now he's responding or is it something else? There could be a couple things going on. Um, what, one factor uh, that can, can play a role here is that, as you suggested, uh, over sedation can certainly decrease the respiratory rate and that can lead to CO2 retention. Sometimes in an ischemic condition, however, for instance, if a limb had been tied off or, or if there was some sort of uh, tourniquet type effect in, in part of the body, you have a clearance of acidotic regions of the body and you can then have a compensatory increase in uh, carbon dioxide delivery. That's just something that has to be monitored very carefully. I think in this situation, it's probably more likely that it's a respiratory uh, source than it is a um, tourniquet type effect with reperfusion of tissue that had previously been poorly perfused. Would you say that with entitled CO2, does that number necessarily reflect what is exactly happening in the body, or is it do you have to keep that number in perspective to what has the patient history? Right, yeah, you definitely have to keep any number that you're dealing with in perspective. Your physical assessment is going to be really the most uh, uh, dependable but certainly essential uh, thing that you have to do. Continuous physical reassessment uh, and looking at that relative to whatever numerical indices you're looking at uh, is, is going to be important. I'm presuming you're going to be listening with a stethoscope. You're going to be assessing whether or not each uh, breath is an adequate uh, breath, whether or not there are any uh, quiet areas of the lung that might suggest that uh, there's either uh, 
the development of um, uh, collapse in some part of the lung or whether or not over-resuscitation has produced uh, some uh, form of um, pulmonary edema or some other pulmonary congestion that's uh, inhibiting the, uh, uh, the effectiveness of ventilation. Those are all things that need to be taken into consideration. Um, you can also have uh, uh, dead space um, contributing to poorly ventilated um, area of, uh, of, the, of the lung and the airway. Uh, I don't think we're quite to that point in the scenario, but that's certainly something that needs to be um, taken into consideration as well. So as far as this particular scenario, things seem to be cruising along pretty well, mm -hmm. and we probably can maintain this, uh -huh. I think. Okay. So let's throw a monkey wrench into it. Sure. Let's, instead of him responding, let's say he is not responding. Mm -hmm. We've given him two units of blood, which is all we have. Mm -hmm. um, we do have the TXA on board, mm -hmm. but from now on, it's lactated ringers. That's all uh -huh. we have okay. left. So right now, he's, he's still hypotensive. He's getting worse, mm -hmm. tachycardic, and tachypnic still. Because of the loss of mental status, we start thinking about maybe we need to intubate or correct this patient. Right. How do we set up the scenario? How do we set up our ventilations to um, optimize this patient? Sure. Um, well, let, let's just back up a little bit. What, presumably, we're, we have no uh, difficulty securing the airway. I think as soon as the, as soon as the Glasgow Coma Scale um, uh, starts to deteriorate and the risk of uh, not being able to protect the airway uh, becomes a factor, then um, uh, securing the airway is, is going to be important. Even under those circumstances, though, you now have a protected airway. If spontaneous ventilation is still a possible mode uh, of support, then I would certainly go with that, maybe gentle assisting if necessary. Uh, but if you are moving to the point where you actually have to use mechanical ventilation, um, you're going to still have to provide your most attention to the cardiovascular status of the patient. Make sure you're continuing to support blood pressure the best you can with crystalloid infusions that you have available to you. Uh, again, presumably you're still monitoring with your uh, end tidal CO2. Um, if I had to pick one, uh, one monitor to have, it would be a, a capnographic uh, monitor because um, that gives you a f an idea of what's happening both in the lungs and also in the cardiovascular system. It's sort of a, I call it a poor man's uh, cardiac output monitor. Mm -hmm. You have to have cardiac output in order to be delivering carbon dioxide to, to, the, to the device. So now I have this brand new device, it's called the Save 2 Vent, mm -hmm. and on it I can set my tidal volume, mm -hmm. I can set my rates, mm -hmm. um, it has PEEP and PIP. Mm -hmm. So the first step is setting up the tidal volume. Mm -hmm. Now, since I'm savvy enough to read, I've heard about this ARDSNET trial. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Tell me a little bit about why are they reducing a normal tidal volume from 10 uh, milliliters per kilogram to six to eight. Right. That's a great question. Uh, physiologically, when you're breathing spontaneously, uh, your tidal volumes, if you were to assess them on a per kilo basis, are going to be somewhere in the five to seven range of milliliters per kilogram. So the ARDSNET protocol uh, basically took what was a uh, standard ventilation protocol of 10 or so milliliters per kilogram uh, and compared it to a, a lower uh, tidal volume uh, protocol that was designed to um, 
more closely mimic what's happening physiologically. Now, the extent to which the ARDSnet data and, and protocols are applicable in a situation like this, uh, at this stage of the scenario, uh, is, is, is not, it's not great. Uh, so we're borrowing from uh, a, a study um, protocol that has become kind of a standard in the um, intensive care unit for patients who have acute respiratory, adult respiratory distress syndrome. Um, we're not quite there uh, in this scenario and may evolve in that direction, but we're not quite there right now. Um, and so the risk of overventilation um, of a patient using larger tidal volumes uh, presents really a couple of, of, of um, uh, factors. One is just the overventilation and the, uh, the impedance of circulation that comes with overventilation, but also there is the barotrauma that's associated with large tidal volume. It's like you're trying to slam air into these fragile alveoli uh, at a rate and uh, in an amount that's really out of proportion to what nature is is prepared to, mm -hmm. to um, handle under most circumstances. Okay. So the SAVE-2 uh, device uh, is um, really, I, seems to me, a real innovation. Um, uh, one study that I uh, previewed before this podcast um, looked at the com uh, comparison between uh, the Siemens servo ventilation uh, techniques with the SAVE-2 and the SAVE-1. Mm -hmm. um, and the SAVE-2 performed as well as the servo ventilator mm -hmm. did. This was in a porcine model or pig model where they put um, oleic acid uh, and caused a, a respiratory distress syndrome. So it's not exactly the same as the, as the scenario we're dealing with in the field. But it points in the right direction, and it, it would suggest that this device can be used uh, as effectively uh, as a, um, uh, a more sophisticated ventilator that you might find in, a, in an intensive care setting. That was not true for the SAVE-1. The SAVE-1 did not perform as well as the SAVE-2 um, compared to the, to the servo. Uh, so uh, the uh, SAVE-2 ventilator uh, as I understand it, is uh, A, it's compact, B, it's protocol-driven, it's easy to set up, it's got great alarms, um, got great um, written instructions. Uh, it, it looks like it's really quite, quite a good tool to have under these kinds of circumstances. So what I would do under this circumstance is I would start with the uh, weight-based uh, settings that um, part of the protocols that are provided for the ventilator. Um, and then, uh, as far as adjusting uh, any one of those parameters, uh, we can go through those individually if you'd like. Yeah. Let's run through each of the parameters, and mm -hmm. then we'll talk about how to modify mm -hmm. all four of those mm -hmm. um, to optimize a patient mm -hmm. uh, for this given patient. Okay. We set our we set our tidal volume. Now we have to go into our respiratory rate. Mm -hmm. Now, my his body is produce this respiratory rate on purpose. Mm -hmm. um, one to augment cardiac output, mm -hmm. and the other, probably at this point, is start fixing some of the acidosis mm -hmm. that's been built up um, from ischemia. So is that, if you were going to start off, would you set the respiratory rate to match mm -hmm. 
mm-hmm. his physiologic respiratory rate, or would you modify it? Right, I'd be inclined to do that. My 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 basic philosophy in most patient care scenarios. As an anesthesiologist, of course, I was taking consciousness away from people all the time, but I assumed that something that was sufficient while the patient was awake is sufficient while the patient is asleep. And in a situation like this, um, we have a number of vital signs that we need to regulate as best we can, uh, but I would start with uh, a respiratory rate that was uh, matching uh, what the patient uh, was was displaying, and then monitoring the effectiveness of the ventilation again with my stethoscope and with my capnogram, and and then adjusting from there either up or down depending on what was necessary. Um, going along with the respiratory rate, we also have PEEP. Mm-hmm. So, in our environment, usually we set it at a five centimeters mm-hmm. of water, mm-hmm. and we generally leave it. The idea we're trying to hold open the alveoli long mm-hmm. enough that it's perfusing, and then I can get the CO2 off. Right. Would you stick with that, or would you maybe set it and then start modifying that? Yeah, no, that's a great question. I mean, PEEP is something that people have been playing with for quite a while. Um, uh, when we are breathing spontaneously, we have what we call intrinsic PEEP. There's a certain level of PEEP that um, maintains airway uh, patency, or I shouldn't say airway patency, but alveolar patency. Um, and uh, people have estimated that that's somewhere around three to five. So that's certainly a good place to start. I think one of the functions of PEEP, however, is to recruit alveoli that have been um, compromised, either collapsed through atelectasis or uh, compromised because the fluid has leaked into it through, say, over-resuscitation, aspiration of stomach contents, or inhalation injury, and uh, transudation of um, fluids from injured tissue. There are any number of things that can contribute to the derecruitment of, uh, of lung areas. And so titrating PEEP to recruit um, these collapsed areas of, of the lung or ineffectively ventilated areas of the lung uh, is something that can be tried. Um, and I would say that it's probably only something you need to be concerned about if your oxygenation is deteriorating. Um, my own personal preference is to try to uh, improve um, uh, alveolar recruitment a little bit before I start going way, way up on my oxygen levels. So there's one last setting I want to get into, and then we can talk about the, uh, the art of optimizing this mm-hmm. ventilation, and that's uh, PIP. Mm-hmm. So, so peak inspiratory pressure, what it was going to be the maximum amount of pressure that's delivered with each breath. Um, in the ARSNET protocol, they were using somewhere around 30. Uh, and I think the default setting for the uh, save 2, if I recall correctly, is 30. And so you start there. You can titrate down. You can titrate below that. In the operating room for normal patients who weren't injured, uh, we often would start 20, 22. Um, so uh, the, the idea there is you don't want to overextend um, the alveoli. You don't want to literally tear the tissue uh, at the microscopic level or even the macroscopic level um, by, by giving too much pressure. You don't want to hyperinflate the lungs so that you can't have good circulation of blood past uh, the alveoli. 
so you're going to monitor and adjust your peak inspiratory pressure by um, both your assessment of cardiovascular status of the patient as well as the ventilatory status of the patient. Yeah. Um, and carbon dioxide elimination may be enhanced by going up on your on your peak inspiratory pressure uh, a little bit more effectively than than uh, oxygenation, but it may be necessary to adjust both PEEP and PIP and there's under certain some circumstances. Right, and if, the, if you're looking at the face of the Save2 vent, if you press the center button, it will tell you, it'll actually measure what the PIP is mm-hmm. and it'll give you that reading. Mm-hmm. Um, one thing I did want to talk about, both PEEP and PIP, is that you can definitely set them uh, incorrectly and cause more trauma. Absolutely. So you have to, it's probably better to start low and start mm-hmm. working your way up, but you have to really know what your goal is mm-hmm. and know, knowing how to measure it. Oxygenation, uh, definitely the big one for that. I don't personally know in the, in the field I would start de-recruiting unless uh, things got really bad. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, I know that you can actually you can actually worsen atelectasis mm-hmm. if you have a very poor uh, PIP or PEEP. Absolutely, absolutely. And the, the and the current thinking about ventilatory strategies is that you are somehow ventilating in between a PIP and a PEEP, mm-hmm. and uh, and so the 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 notion is to have. Um, uh, optimal lung expansion that's sufficient to permit blood flow so that gases can be exchanged as necessary. It's not commonly known, but uh, in the operating room for certain kinds of procedures, we would do what was uh, referred to um, as um, uh, a a type of of oxygenation, apneic oxygenation, Mm -hmm. where as long as you have a stable circulatory system, uh, you don't even have to ventilate the patient. Um, and then the rate-limiting factor becomes the amount of carbon dioxide that builds up. Too much carbon dioxide can be harmful. Um, but I think we tend to tolerate hypercarbia a little bit better than we do hypocarbia. Uh, when the carbon dioxide level is too low, you not only um, run the risk of, of, uh, of um inducing um, uh, arrhythmias uh, if you're artificially lowering the, the um, carbon dioxide by overventilating, then you're impeding circulation and all of those things can be very very bad for the heart mm-hmm. oh yeah absolutely um, okay so now we've kind of run through the different parts to, that we can modify with this vent um, how would you use all of these components, the, the tidal volume, the rate, the, the PEEP, the peak inspiratory pressure, and our entitled CO2 monitor with our pulse oximeter mm-hmm. and resuscitation right. to really optimize this patient. Right. I think the first point I would make is that optimization is not a single point in time, mm-hmm. uh, and you're going to have a continually evolving situation. And so what may seem optimal at one point in time isn't necessarily going to be optimal at another point in time. And um, 
it's probably best to think of this in terms of a function curve, uh, that there's going to be sort of a sweet spot on that function curve. You're going to get up to a certain point, and then if you try to exceed that, that what we sometimes refer to the enemy of good is better um, point, you, you may actually come down on that function curve again and, and do more harm. So continual reassessment is really the key. Um, cardiovascular stability or near stability is going to be key. Uh, and I think of the lung actually as the fifth chamber of the heart. Mm. Um, and even though it's the third in position, you know, you have the, the right uh, atrium, right ventricle, then you have the lungs, and then you have the um, left atrium and left ventricle. Um, but they're intimately connected. You can't do something to the lungs without impeding um, the heart's function. You can't do anything to the heart without impeding the, the, the lungs' function. So that you have to think of them uh, as, as being integrated with one another. So uh, the way the SAVE-2 monitor, uh, or excuse me, ventilator is set up is that you, you have to be able to adjust tidal volume and, uh, and a respiratory rate in order to attain a certain minute, minute ventilation. Uh, and your minute ventilation is going to be in part related to uh, what your CO2 uh, targets are, are going to be. If you're willing to tolerate a slightly higher end tidal CO2 um, in, in your patient, then uh, you can adjust your, your respiratory rate downward in order to achieve that, or you can decrease your um, your uh, tidal volume downward a little bit to do that. On the other hand, if you want to overcome uh, hypercarbia, you might want to go up on your tidal volume first and then go up on your respiratory rate. Um, so these things work in concert with one another. It's not going to be do this and then you're going to see an automatic um, improvement. One question that did come up is using a CPAP machine mm -hmm. uh, in hopes that I wouldn't have to put, place an advanced airway. Uh -huh. What do you think about that? It's an interesting idea. I mean, a CPAP machine is just continuous positive pressure, airway pressure. And uh, to some extent, if you have a bag mask ventilation system and you are just putting a little bit of pressure on the bag so that the valve stays open and you have gas flowing through that, oxygen usually, uh, you are going to have some continuous positive airway pressure, and that's going to help hold uh, soft tissue out of the way uh, and distend the airways as far as that pressure can be transmitted. The CPAP device isn't, uh, isn't really meant for that. It's meant for the, it is meant for the spontaneously breathing patient. But again, if you have the ability to assess the functional status of the ventilation and you have to improvise, then it's certainly worth a try. I'm not aware of it being used uh, in a field resuscitation mm -hmm. situation, but if people have these things uh, as part of their equipment when they are going where they need to go, then uh, and that's the only tool you have, say you're in a multi-casualty situation, you have to triage and you have somebody who uh, maybe you can't get to right away, it might be worth trying, but I certainly wouldn't do it without monitoring and reassessing. So let's say we don't have the vent. Mm -hmm. We're a little bit closer to the scene. Mm -hmm. We have our BVM. Mm -hmm. How can I take these principles about tidal volumes, rates, mm -hmm. PEEP? We do have PEEP valves that mm -hmm. we can screw onto mm -hmm. our BVM. And we do have the pressure dial on the BVM mm -hmm. as well. 
how can we take those same principles and apply them to BVM ventilation? Right. That, that's a great question. I think the thing we have to remember is that a ventilator is basically a mechanical hand. Uh, and so you have all of the elements there to um, uh, educate yourself, educate your hand to do the right things. So you should be able to replicate what you would want to do with a ventilator by hand. In fact, um, when I got into trouble in the operating room, I would always instruct the residents, we stop the ventilator, we go to hand ventilation, we assess what kind of pressure resistance we have, we assess how effective a tidal volume we can deliver, we kind of get the feel and get a better connection with the patient. So the main function of a ventilator is to free you up so that you can go ahead and do other things. So you should be able to do everything with your hand that you uh, can do with a ventilator. During the uh, polio epidemics of the 1950s, uh, it was not uncommon for medical students to be recruited to be basically human ventilators to support people in wards where they didn't have enough mechanical ventilation, uh, whether it was iron lungs or positive pressure ventilation, uh, to temporize so that patients uh, could then be moved on to the next um, definitive intervention. Mm -hmm. So yes, you should be able to uh, do all these things by, um, not necessarily with a mask, but if you have an endotracheal tube and a, and a, um, uh, a Laridol bag or uh, Ambu bag, whatever uh, brand device is, is being employed, you should be able to come very close to what you can do with a ventilator. Well, thank you, Vince, for your time. Uh, this, I think this was an excellent podcast. I think there's lots of pearls and things for people to sit back and, uh, and improve their own practice from. Well, thank you, Dennis. I deeply appreciate it, and I appreciate the service of everybody who's listening. All right. Thank you. Thank you, sir. That's another one for the books. Make sure to go to the site, www.prolongedfieldcare.org. Post your questions, post your comments, make your voice heard. This is Dennis for the PFC Podcast, out.